Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I am the man with the questions. Today, the guest on the show is Jose Cordeiro. Jose is on the faculty of Singularity University and where he often spoke about his favorite topic, which is the energularity. And this is the reason why I invited him to speak to us here today. So, hello, Jose, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Hello, Nicola. It is a pleasure to be with you to talk about energy and about the energularity. That is fantastic, Jose. So, before we dump, uh, before we, we, we drive into the topic, um, I would like to start my interviews usually by asking uh, a little more details about uh, the personal background of the person that I'm interviewing. Uh, because I want to find out not only what you do, but who you are, because I believe those two things are very much connected. So, if you were to describe yourself in your own words, how would you describe yourself? Well, uh, today I work as a futurist. So, basically, I look at future trends and see what is happening. And uh, that is what I'm doing right now. But um, I have gone through many changes in my life. And most of my uh, working life, actually, I worked as an energy expert, uh, trying to find new energy sources. That is fascinating. And um, one of the most interesting, perhaps, uh, stories that our viewers uh, are not aware just yet of is that you almost became the Minister of Energy of Venezuela. So would you mind sharing a little bit about that story, how it unfolded and how it ended up that you didn't become the Minister of Energy? Uh, During 1997 and 1998, I was the energy advisor to one of the presidential candidates of Venezuela. Her name, Irene Saez Conde, a beautiful woman, in fact, so beautiful that she was Miss Universe. She had been Miss Universe uh, 1980, representing Venezuela, and after becoming Miss Universe, she went into politics, and she was the mayor of Caracas. And then when she was the mayor of Chacao, Caracas, she asked me if I wanted to work with her and be her energy advisor and energy minister of Venezuela if she won. Unfortunately, in 1998, instead of the Miss Universe and the beautiful mayor of Chacao, Caracas, winning the election, it was Chavez, Hugo Chavez, who won. So I say it is a tragedy. It was not the beauty that won, but the beast. <laughs> well, but, but, but then the question is, uh, were those fair elections, in your opinion? Because if they were, then I guess that the people spoke. At that time, yes. That was probably the last fair election in Venezuela in 1998. Since that time, the political situation in Venezuela changed a lot. And you, we cannot say anymore that there are free elections in Venezuela today. Yeah, that kind of reminds me to an old saying which goes about to claim that uh, most revolutionaries end up being tyrants. And as we know from history, that's what happened um, during the French Revolution. And there's numerous other examples. And perhaps it is not so hard to claim that uh, this is exactly what happened and is still going on in Venezuela, unfortunately. Um, and, and I was even reading recently that, that Caracas is the most dangerous city with 
something like, or Venezuela, 50 murders per day, some shocking statistics like that? Uh, yeah, the numbers are really horrible. Uh, actually, in Caracas, it is 50 murders per week, not per day, per week. Per week. And in the rest of the country, about another 50. So it is close to 100 people being killed per week. That gives, if you multiply it 100 times, um, uh, you know, 50 52. to week. That makes over um, 5,000 people uh, who, who are killed um, every year in Venezuela. This is like a civil war that is happening in Venezuela. Yeah, that's, that's shocking. But uh, on the other hand, it couldn't be then the highest because if those numbers are 5,200, 5, I think in, in uh, Mexico for the last couple of years, it was definitely over 10,000. And I've heard numbers with such as 20,000 and so on. Uh, but anyway, let's... Yeah, yeah, the difference... No, 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 the difference is the population. Mexico has 110 million people. Venezuela has less than 30 million people. So if oh, you do absolutely. it per capita... Absolutely. In per capita terms, the numbers are the highest, sadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's turn the, tap, the tape a little bit further backward and, and, and start with this question. How did you become to be interested in energy and how did you get involved in the energy industry? I know that you're a, an engineer by education. I know that you're a former um, graduate of, of, you are a graduate of MIT. So how did you start with MIT and ended going up in the oil and gas business? Well, as a child, I always loved uh, science fiction and space travel and all the things happening uh, uh, or possible uh, in the world. I used to read uh, Jules Verne. So Jules Verne was really a motivator for me. Uh, when I finished high school, I won a scholarship to go to MIT. And when I arrived to MIT, I read one of the most famous books uh, ever written, which I have here, which is The Limits to Growth. The Limits to Growth actually um, that came out in 1972 and I read in 1980 when I arrived at MIT uh, was a best-selling book talking about the coming collapse of civilization because of energy problems, shortages, pollution, uh, overpopulation and so on and so forth. So from that time at MIT I became more and more interested in, in the future of humanity and the future of energy particularly. So I studied mechanical engineering and I began working as a energy engineer for a French multinational called Slamberger. And I traveled with them uh, to five continents looking for oil and gas. So basically, I began working in the fossil fuels industry. Uh, now we have moved and, and I am working more onto renewable energy. But I did begin looking for a, a natural gas and oil around the world. And then how did you and why did you make the transition from the oil and gas industry into um, being even more interested and more focused on advanced technologies and especially um, involved in uh, as a faculty of Singularity University? Well, for that, I will have to show you another book, uh, <laughs> which is... Uh, here <laughs> the singularity is near okay 
Uh, oh, oh, I have it wrong. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the singularity is near. Um, I met actually Ray Kurzweil in 2001 um, when he was presenting his previous book, uh, which was called uh, The Age of Spiritual Machines. So I met him in a conference by the World Future Society, and I really became interested in uh, the things that he was talking about, and also the changes that were happening in energy, that there was an energy transition coming up, uh, which I was aware of because I was also interested uh, in uh, solar energy. So basically, when you realize how much potential we have in terms of solar energy, we have over 10,000 times more solar energy that the human civilization uses today. So we have incredible amounts of solar energy while fossil fuels are decreasing because we don't have unlimited fossil fuels, but we do have unlimited solar energy. So basically, this is how I got more involved into renewable energies. And then talking about the singularity and Ray Kurzweil, when I read in 2008 that a new university was being created with a Ray Kurzweil, who is actually from MIT, with a co-founder, uh, Peter Diamandis, who is also from MIT, let me tell you. So both of them are MIT alumni. I contacted... Um, all my friends, all my people, because I wanted to be involved with that university from the beginning. And so I started working in 2009 for the summer program uh, at Singularity University. Uh, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. So um, let me just dive a little bit deeper onto the Singularity University topic, and then we'll go back to energy. Uh, so what is the purpose of Singularity University anyway? Well, I think it's the greatest idea of the world to prepare humanity for the transition that we're going to see in the next 20, 30, 40 years with all these converging technologies that I normally refer to NBIC, NBIC, Nano, Bio, Info, and Cogno. So these technologies, these new sciences are radically changing humanity. And even more, they are changing human beings. We are being changed by these technologies at an exponential rate of change. So this is actually a change that is accelerating and going faster and faster and faster. And we will change from the old world using fossil fuels, for example, talking about energy, to a new world of almost unlimited possibilities and unlimited energy. So, um, where does Singularity University fit within your own personal goals um, and motivation? Well, I think uh, Singularity University is a very uh, unique concept of preparing leaders for this new world of the technological singularity. Because I have also been working as an academic for some part of my life, I feel very at home teaching in this place where we are trying to find leaders for this trans transition towards a better and more energetic humanity. And as one of the former students of Singularity University and current alumni, I can personally vouch that you are, in fact, the highest energy uh, faculty member of Singularity University by far. You create uh, an energularity of, of your own during uh, your time that you spend on the stage. So perhaps now is the time to ask you, what does the energularity mean? Did you coin the term and what does it stand for? Um, yes, as far as I know, I invented the term, which is uh, based on the idea of the singularity, uh, but for energy. 
Uh, there is a, a previous name that was also invented by Aubrey de Grey. Aubrey de Grey, who is also an invited faculty at Singularity University, he created the idea of the methuselarity. The methuselarity being the time when we will reach escape velocity of living long enough to live forever. So this idea of the methuselarity or the singularity inspired me to create a concept for energy. And what best concept that to reach a point where uh, humanity will have almost unlimited amounts of energy. And for that, I actually use the energy scale of the universe, which was created by a Russian scientist called Nikolai Kardashev. Nikolai Kardashev, who is still alive in, the, in Russia, he uh, wrote in the 1960s about the energy uh, scale of the universe, beginning with a planet uh, that uses all the energy available to it that has uh, civilization type 1. Uh, then a civilization type 2 is one civilization that uses all the energy available to the solar system. So not just to the planet, but to the whole solar system where the planet is located. And then civilization type 3 to the galaxy. And then uh, eventually we can talk about civilization type 4, a civilization that uses all the power, all the energy available to the uh, supercluster of galax galaxies. And finally, civilization type 5, when we reach all the power available in the known universe. Okay, so that's a lot of energy. And uh, we humans right now are actually at a very, very tiny level of uh, civilization type 1. We are uh, almost nothing in terms of the amount of energy that we have available to our planet. So the idea then is to reach uh, this energularity or reaching civilization type 1, according to Nikolai Kardashev, energy scale for the universe. So let me ask you this then. Um, what I find very interesting about your argument and very unique is that on the one hand, you have environmentalists and a number of people who say that we have very high, uns unsustainably high consumption of energy as a civilization, right? And one of the, the best ways to ensure our future survival, according to that line of reasoning, is to conserve energy uh, and to economize it and to use as little as possible. On the other hand, your argument is that actually it's quite the opposite, that actually uh, we are going to accelerate our consumption of energy, but that would happen at, in a context in which energy becomes exponentially cheaper and exponentially more, more available. So how is that possible? I mean, amidst all the claims of, of, of the pessimists who claim that we're running out of resources, running out of energy, etc. Um, well, actually, uh, we can make a comparison to Internet. When we think about Internet uh, 30 years ago, people thought that we could not have access to so much information and so much data that it was impossible and that it would create a collapse of the civilization that we had. And when you look at the situation today, it's just the opposite. We have more and more data, more and more information, and actually it is cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So the same, I think, is going to happen with energy. We are going to use more and more energy, and it is going to be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Now, let me put this into, into perspective. Why are we going to use so much more energy? And the reason is because uh, humanity will begin the... Um, 
exploration and colonization of the universe. And for that, we need lots of energy. We need a lot of energy because it is very energy expensive to take humans or to take robots out of our planet into the outer atmosphere. And um, that requires uh, incredible amounts of energy. But again, I repeat, we have lots of energy reaching our planet from the sun, and we will be able to gather this energy very cheaply in the following uh, two decades. And, and how exactly are we going to gather that energy? Uh, or, or, I mean, what, in your opinion, is the energy of the future? You said that you started with the oil and gas industry and then eventually you moved on to more renewable uh, resources uh, such as solar uh, being one of them. What is the future energy that our civilization needs to embrace, in your opinion? Well, just as today we have an energy mix, even though it is mostly fossil fuels, because we have, uh, to put it roughly, one-third of natural gas, one-third of coal, and one-third of oil, and then a little bit of other things, including nuclear energy and renewables today. In the future, we will also have a mix, but that mix will be tilted towards solar energy, because solar energy is the elephant, is the big elephant in the house. Um, we also have plenty of wind energy. I mean, really, a lot of a lot of wind energy. In fact, um, if we advanced wind energy enough, we could also power the whole of civilization today just using wind energy. Another good example is geothermal energy. Geothermal energy also has the potential to power civilization today. But um, when we compare those two, which are huge, which are big, you know, they are nothing compared to solar energy. But let me tell you, even though solar energy is incredible and it's so abundant and uh, it's almost unlimited. There is even more. There is so much more energy. If we look about what Einstein and his famous equation, E equals mc squared, you know, this gives us even more energy than solar power. If we can convert a little amount of mass uh, into uh, energy using Einstein's equation, you know, we have incredible amounts of energy. So solar power is not the end of the game. There is more energy if we use, uh, uh, you know, Einstein's equation, conversion of matter into energy, and even more, even more in the future, if we use antimatter into matter. So what do you say? I mean, I remember uh, one of our guest speakers um, during uh, last summer graduate studies program at Singularity University, I think was the chief economist of uh, the chief economist of Exxon Mobil. And uh, Chevron, Chevron Texaco. Oh, Chevron Texaco. I'm sorry. Uh, but again, as an energy expert, you know better than me. Uh, but if I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember according to his argument, he did not see or foresee that tilting that you were just talking about towards solar and alternative uh, energy sources. And in fact, he claimed in his argument that uh, fossil fuels, oil and gas would continue to dominate for the next couple of decades. So... Well, actually, uh, you know, um, I don't believe in peak oil. Many people talk about peak oil, and obviously it will eventually happen, but not in 20 or even 50 years, because we do have plenty of fossil fuels today, and not just coal. We have a lot of um, natural gas, and we have a lot of oil. So if we continued on the, the current path, 
we still have enough fossil fuels. But I think we are going to change because of environmental considerations as well. You know, the environment is important and we really need to use better energy sources. And if we have solar energy, which is almost unlimited, and that hopefully this year in 2012 will reach grid parity. Grid parity means that solar energy in some markets, obviously, starting in the sunnier countries, will reach the cost of um, electricity produced from coal. Okay, and this will happen this year, 2012, in some sunny markets. This will radically change the industry because it, it is going to be cheaper to use solar energy than to use fossil fuels. And because economics rules the world, you know, uh, people will realize that it is actually cheaper. Not only is it environmentally better, but also it is economically cheaper to use solar energy. And this will continue during the following decades. So I think it is an incredible change happening. It is the biggest transition in energy we have seen in the history of the planet. And also let me emphasize that energy is not any industry. Energy is the largest industry in this planet. Energy represents about $8 trillion of business. $8 trillion of business per year. That's a lot of money. And in this transition, we are going to go from old energy into new energy sources. So it's, it's an incredible transition that some people don't realize. Like, let me compare it to Internet or to exponential change in information. Many people don't realize still what is happening in the um, information technologies. Many people didn't think that we would have um, mobile phones for almost the whole planet. Today, 80% of the inhabitants of the planet already has a mobile telephone. This was totally unexpected 20 years ago. It was still unbelievable, even 10 years ago. Well, let me tell you what is going to happen in 10 years, 20 years. You know, I foresee that in 20 years, at least, at least half of the energy used in the planet will come from solar sources. So why is it that, that people in the industry, such as uh, Chevron, Texaco, are failing to see that uh, possibility as a very credible one? And what do you think would happen to them? Uh, I mean, is that a denial or is that simply a disagreement on the facts and the trends happening uh, in the industry right now? Well, because the energy industry is in transition, many things are happening and there is not a clear vision. And also there are big vested interests. You know, companies from the oil, old oil industry have a lot of uh, vested interest and the infrastructure costs are huge. So for them, it is not convenient that this transition is fast. However, some companies are looking this transition even in the oil industry. And let me give you an example. Total, Total which is the big uh, uh, energy company, oil uh, company from France, bought Sun Power, which was the largest Sun Sun Energy Company in the USA in 2011. And why did Total, an oil industry company, buy the largest Sun Power Company in the USA? Well, because they know that this is coming. And probably in 20 years, Sun Power will be bigger than Total, or it will produce more revenue for the old Total that... Um, that um, the, the situation would indicate otherwise. So uh, this is going to happen. Uh, ExxonMobil, again, is also interested in solar energy. Finally, British Petroleum also had some programs in solar energy and hydrogen that unfortunately they abandoned 
they had so many problems, uh, BP, that they abandoned the hydrogen program. But these trends will continue. I think they are unstoppable almost because I repeat, not only are they good for the environment, they are cheaper. They are good for business. They are good for the economy. You just mentioned uh, the vested interest that those companies have, but what about uh, other skeptics who uh, point to the fact that similar predictions were made, say, in the late 40s and early 1950s about electricity, um, and some experts said that electricity would become so radically abundant that it would be just too cheap to meter, and it would be practically free. Well, looking uh, 60 years down the road where we are today, this uh, has not materialized just yet. So is there not the possibility that those predictions are going to end up the same way? Well, uh, anything could happen. That is uh, for sure. But again, I'm telling you about the trends, what is happening. And I repeat, this year we will reach grid parity with solar energy for the first time in some sunny markets. This is beginning to happen now. You know, 50 years ago, the conditions were different. Actually, you can again compare this to artificial intelligence. Some people talked about artificial intelligence that it should have happened earlier. But why could not happen it earlier? Because we did not have enough computing power as we have today. Uh, in a similar way, you could say also that the solar industry actually is using many of the technologies to produce um, silicon panels uh, for computers. They are using that for producing solar panels. So there is an exponential trend also in solar panels and they are becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And um, it's beautiful. When you compare the trends in, in the reduction of uh, the cost of solar panels, you can compare that to the uh, computing uh, power uh, just 20, decades, uh, 20 years ago. And what do you think would be the effect of uh, solar power reaching and eventually surpassing parity with oil and gas and other fossil fuel energy sources on countries such as Venezuela or such as uh, many of the oil producing countries from the Middle Eastern region who are entirely dependent on their GDP and their national revenue on uh, fossil fuels. Do you not think well, that would destabilize the global uh, uh, the, the world, not only economically, but also politically and, and even militarily, socially. Well, well, sure. I mean, this is a huge, huge transition. And again, in the largest industry in the world. So this is big. What is happening is big. But uh, for one thing, you know, the countries that right now produce oil basically are, are in sunny places as well. So, for example, some of the North African countries are very much in favor of solar power because they have a lot of sun also. Uh, you could say the same about Venezuela. Venezuela has a lot of sun. And you could say the same about the Middle East and some other uh, uh, oil-producing nations, even Indonesia and Nigeria. Uh, a bigger problem would be this, uh, Russia. Russia actually doesn't have that much sun, and it has a lot of oil. So the problem might be actually not with the Middle East, North Africa, Venezuela, Nigeria, or Indonesia, but with Russia. What is Russia going to do? Because Russia has a lot of oil, and Russia is one of the uh, 
top two oil producers in the world. You know, Russia is always competing with Saudi Arabia to see who is number one today. And uh, the situation might be complicated uh, in Russia. But again, in Russia, they also have a lot of technology. And uh, in fact, I'm positive. I think they will use this technology to advance solar power even in Russia. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's another fantastic point that you just made about Russia, because as we know, Russia is one of the major nuclear powers in the world, which is at the same time still being run by an authoritarian regime, as we saw during the last election there. Uh, so that's indeed a, a, a very important thing to keep in mind about the position uh, in Russia. And, and that also raises the stakes about what would happen in Russia, politically speaking. Would there be a transition to a new government, uh, which is not basically uh, controlled by Putin and his cronies or not? And because that would have potentially global implications as it does. But anyway, let me um, ask you this then. So is the irregularity near or is it far? Uh, and, and if it is near or far, uh, how far or near is it? And how do we estimate where it is? Well, if, if we believe, as Ray Kurzweil says, that the technological singularity might happen in 2045, the irregularity is still farther down the road. Because um, with the current amount of energy, we can actually reach the technological singularity. Um, but I think um, it would take maybe half a century more to go from the singularity to the energularity. So by the beginning of next century, the 22nd century, we will be reaching... Um, you know, the energularity. And again, it makes sense because that is the point when we will massively begin the colonization of outer space, I think. This will begin in the end of this 21st century, but it will go into big, big uh, stream in the 22nd century. So in your own estimate, it's about 100, a year, uh, 100 years or so off from where we are at today. Yes. Actually, some people think it might be a bit farther down the road, maybe 200, 300 years. But I disagree because, again, this is accelerating. Like so many things are happening faster and faster. So I don't think it is 200 years. I think it is 100 years at the latest. Uh, again, um, but the other thing, uh, we will reach this um, energularity not only through solar power, but also through you know, nuclear uh, energy conversion using Einstein's equation, E equals M times C squared. We will actually be using energy at that moment in 100 years, not just from solar power, but from mass to energy conversion. Where does fusion fit into the irregularity? Okay, actually, well, fusion is the way the sun or the stars make their energy, right? So we will use fusion to uh, power some of our uh, interstellar uh, uh, spacecraft to travel uh, from our um, uh, solar system into other uh, solar systems and other galaxies eventually. So we will probably use some uh, fusion power in our um, space shifts. So, uh, to go back again, for you, the moment of irregularity would be the moment that we become a type one civilization according to the Kardashev scale? That is, That's right. That is the, the, the lightmost test that we have uh, mastered the control of resources 
uh, within our planet. That, that's right. And again, to, to give a number to this, that is about 100 to 200 petawatts of power. Actually, we are talking about power. Power and energy are not exactly the same. There is a time factor that connects them. But uh, talking about power, it is between 100 and 200 petawatts. A peta is 10 to the 15. So it's a, a very large number. Uh, right now, human civilization is at about 15 terawatts. 15 terawatts. A terawatt is 10 to the uh, 12. So from we are going to go from 15 terawatts to about 100 to 200 petawatts, and this will happen in a century. Wow, that's that's really flabbergasting kind of a progress and shift. Uh, so so to translate that that kind of picture, that kind of vision from the sort of uh, physical measurement, uh, would you describe? that context of the irregularity? What, if you had a time machine and you were able to go 100 years down the road, what would you see in the context of the irregularity? How would we know that we have arrived there? Well, that's an excellent question. Like, uh, how will we know when we have reached the technological singularity. You know, it's not going to be exactly in 2045, as Ray Kurzweil uh, says, probably. Or when will we reach the methuselarity, this uh, longev longevity escape velocity of living long um, to live um, forever. Uh, so when we will reach 100 to 200 petawatts of energy, it depends on so many things. It depends on how much space activities we do. I mean, uh, humanity and post-humanity. I have to emphasize this. It's not just humans, but it will be a whole robotic civilization and cyborg civilization that we will be fissioned with us. We are fissioning with our technology. And again, um, it is not just humans. It will be transhumans, post-humans, cyborgs, and robots that will colonize the rest of the solar system. And for that, again, we need incredible amounts of energy reaching 100 to 200 petawatts and um, it's going to be a very interesting road a very winding uh, path we are going to take into the future well some people have pointed out that one of the easiest ways to explain why the SETI program has not returned any positive contacts with an extraterrestrial intelligent civilization yet must be the possibility or the, 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 the high probability of civilization-wide extinction. And some people point that the most likely, the most vulnerable period that this phenomenon can occur and probably does occur is the moment when such a civilization goes to stage one or from stage one to stage two. Uh, uh, civilization on the Kardashev scale. So how vulnerable do you think we are during that highly transitional and highly volatile process? And how likely are we to survive it? Excellent question, uh, because we are living in the most uh, incredible times in um, human history. We have enough uh, technology to destroy our civilization. We have managed not to do it. 
And um, I think we will manage to move into the next phase of humanity and post-humanity. But again, we have to be aware that with nuclear weapons, soon with bioweapons, with nano-weapons, and with energy weapons, we can destroy our civilization. And that is also why I strongly believe uh, that we have to leave our cradle planet. We have to leave Earth. We have to go into other planets. We have to diversify our egg basket to go into other planets. But again, uh, let me tell you, even though the scenario could be the total destruction of humanity and life on this planet, you know, I am optimist. I am optimist, and I think we have to be optimistic about the future because that is what the future is about. Uh, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, who was one of the greatest science fiction writers ever, he said that many of these things are self-fulfilling prophecies. If we believe that we self-destroy ourselves, we will probably self-destroy ourselves. But if we believe that we will overcome all these problems, that we will transform our civilization into a type one, a type two, a type three civilization, then we will probably do it. So I also think this is a self-fulfilling prophecy that we will survive, that we will move ahead, that we will move onward, that we will move upward, that we will move outward. This is fantastic, uh, but uh, I would like to push you a little bit further on that point because I'm always surprised by the answer that people give me. For example, I mean, Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being too optimistic about our chances to survive the technological singularity. Um, and just one example, I think I interviewed Michael Anisimov uh, from the Singularity Institute, and he told me that he's also an optimist like you, but when I ask him to give a mathematical measure or percentage of our chances of surviving and overcoming the technological singularity, he said something like 2%, which totally shocked me. So if I press you to give a mathematical or, or a percentage probability uh, to us surviving the technological singularity, what would that be in your estimate? Well, I would say 99% or maybe more. Um, actually, let me tell you uh, Machiavelli. Machiavelli, also a very famous uh, Italian uh, political scientist, intellectual writer, whatever. You know, he actually said that most of humanity is good. And uh, I believe that too. Most of humanity and post-humanity will be good. Um, we do have some rotten apples. In, in humanity, but they are very few and they are far between each other. So I think they will not have enough power to destroy civilization because the good ones are the majority and we will overcome the rotten apples of civilization. So again, I, I also think, you know, in evolu evolutionary terms that um, um, things keep on getting better and better and better. So I think um, our descendants humans and non-humans will probably live in a better world and the probability of this improving will continue because the more we know the more we understand uh, the the better things become so i keep on being very optimistic and i give no more than one percent for the destruction of our civilization at this stage well, let me ask you this then, because you mentioned that you believe that our uh, descendants would live in a better world, but what are our own chances to see that world for our own selves with our own eyes? 
I mean, uh, some of your colleagues at Singularity University, such as Aubrey de Grey, are working on uh, longevity escape velocity and uh, achieving the metacellularity that you've already mentioned. You have others, such as uh, Daniel Kraft, who is the head of the Future Met program there, who bring together a number of cutting-edge experts in, from that field who often make similar arguments. So what, in your opinion, is our chances of us witnessing this ourselves? Well, when I said our descendants, that includes us. We will be our own descendants. Um, but let me tell you, um, I do think that we will reach physical immortality in two fronts. One on the biological front, because in the next 20 years, we will be able to replace any organ of the body. And not only replace, but improve biologically any organ of the body. So we will be, if you want to put it this way, biologically immortal. But also, we will become computationally immortal. All the information that we have in our brains, and that information includes feelings, love, stories, and memories, and all of that, will be able to upload that into a computer or a machine, also by the singularity in 2045. So I do think we will be computationally and biologically immortal in the next 20 to 30 and at the latest in 40 years from now. And I do plan to be alive by then. So I do hope to be part of that first generation of immortals. <laughs> so, I mean, those are famous last words, but I, 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 I have similar, I cherish similar hopes like you, but those are famous last words. So that, that makes me laugh sometimes. I mean, Marcus Aurelius said once that death smiles at us all. The only thing we can do is smile back. Uh, but um, I cherish similar hopes to you, as I said. Anyway, so, so we are going to live forever. We're going to have unlimited energy resources, um, which would allow us in turn to conquer the universe eventually. So what should we do then? Should we just sit on our couches and, and play games and watch TV all, 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 day, all day long? Or is there something that we should do? Should we just sit and wait for the singularity to happen? Well, no, because uh, again, if we don't work towards that, it might not happen because there is a uh, small but, but a real uh, probability that it might not happen, not just the singularity, but then therefore not even the energularity. So we do have to work towards that. Um, and uh, also because it is exciting, it is fascinating. I enjoy everything I do. And I think, um, you know, the world is becoming more exciting, more interesting. Things are happening faster. You know, I wish I, I, I could already amplify my mind, you know, in order to read more, to do more things, also to amplify my body. You know, I could be in at least three different places in one moment. I would love to do that, to upload my brain in different uh, robots or cyborgs, whatever. So uh, anyway, uh, just to put it um Short, I think we have to work towards the most incredible transition of humanity. You know, this, this is so exciting uh, because also we are conscious of it. It is not like when we evolved from apes, you know, we were not really that conscious of what might have been happening. I, at least I don't think so. But now we are aware of it. We are aware of all this technology that is improving us and improving the conditions of um, humanity in general. So I call this conscious evolution as opposed to uh, um, 
biological evolution, which is by trial and error. This conscious evolution is based on technology. It's based on design. We actually create the evolution we want to see, and we are conscious of it. So it's, it's very different from what happened before, and I'm very optimistic, and it is very exciting, and it is happening in 20, 30, 40 years, and we should be alive by then. So you just mentioned that this sort of conscious, deliberate evolution by design, uh, which would take uh, along our intelligence to our descendants, which we would become eventually ourselves. Uh, and we've been talking before that about uh, concepts such as a technological singularity, the metusillarity, the energularity. Uh, let me ask you this. Does it all add up to something? Uh, is there a kind of a teleological direction towards that kind of evolution that we're describing here? I mean, some people, for example, claim that the ultimate end would be the universe waking up and uh, the, the, the sort of a conglomeration of this giant computronium. Is that how you see the really far off, far off future or is that not a possibility uh, in your mind? Well, those are actually some of the possibilities of the future. And uh, I'm not able to see that far away. You know, already <laughs> looking into the singularity takes a lot of courage. But, but I, I think that something like a global brain will evolve, a global brain. And then we will maybe, as you said, and as Ray Kurzweil has written, the universe will wake up. This is very possible, this is very probable, and uh, we are merging ourselves, not only with our technology, but with other humans. That is why I'm not so worried about all these privacy concerns, because we are integrating more and more with other humans continuously. And I actually like to make a comparison with the different cells of our body. The different cells of our body were separate once upon a time, a long, long time ago, billions of years ago, when all life forms were unicellular, only single cells, and then they got together and they created big organisms like us. Well, in the future, I think that we will create a super mega global brain across the universe. Something really incredible, beautiful. Professor Kevin Warwick from the University of Reading, who is often called the first cyborg, for example, said that he and we uh, would become the Borg eventually. Yes, and I know him uh, very much, and uh, I, I like that. But let me tell you also a famous quote of one of my professors at MIT, who is also one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, Marvin Minsky. Marvin Minsky is very famous because he was asked if robots will inherit the planet, and he said, yes, but we will be them. They will be us. So again, this is the concept we are merging with our technology. Um, that is why I talk about humans, transhumans, posthumans, cyborgs, robots, and many other things we cannot even dream of in the vir virtual worlds. That's fascinating, Jose. Unfortunately, we're approaching the end of our interview. So before I ask you the very last question that I usually ask, ask all my guests, um, let me ask you this. Where can our viewers and listeners go and find more information about you and your work and follow uh, what you do? 
Well, I I have a web page um, just about me and some of the books I have written, uh, but also I am very active in the Millennium Project. And let me actually talk about that uh, briefly because we publish every year a book which is called The State of the Future. And, and in this book, we talk about all the big trends that are happening in 15 areas from energy to water, from democracy to technology. So I am very active on that and I work on uh, developing scenarios for the future of Latin America and the future of the world. So this is a good way to see some of my work also, um, which um, uh, I highly recommend to everybody, including my my books in Amazon.com. That's fantastic. And then the last question that I always ask of my guests is this. Do you have a single message or the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview today with you? Yes, the future is beautiful. It is really incredible. We are going to see things we could never even dream of. Beautiful, incredible things. For that, we need a lot of energy. So reaching the energularity is important. But we have to be optimistic. And this is the message I want to finish with. We have to be optimistic because this has even psychological considerations. And let me give you the example of the glass. You know, is this glass half full or half empty? And, you know, it is very important to think that it is half full because it impacts the way you think, the way you act, and the way you look into the future. So the world is just half full. It is beginning to become fuller and fuller and more beautiful. Wow, that's very well said. Thank you very much, Jose, for taking your time and being with us today on Singularity One-on-One. For a great future full of energy. Thank you.